Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. It was a week that started with high political tensions around the small boats issue, and it ended with a note of harmony, even an entente cordiale. But the political week didn't start off that way. Claims unprocessed, the taxpayer paying for hotel rooms, criminal gangs running all the way, laughing to the bank, and an asylum sister utterly broken on his watch. This is their fifth prime minister, their sixth immigration plan, their seventh home secretary. And after all this time, all they offer is the same old gimmicks and empty promises. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to Westminster from the Financial Times with me, George Parker, in the hot seat vacated by Seb Payne. And a new name is on its way and a new format too, I promise. But in the meantime, you're stuck with me. In this week's episode, we'll be looking at Rishi Sunak's attempts to solve the small boats issue with the new illegal migration bill. I'm delighted to be joined by political correspondent Jasmine Cameron-Shleshi and columnist Miranda Green to discuss it. And then we'll be talking about the UK-France summit in Paris, the first such meeting in five years, and a rare outbreak of bonhomie between the two sides. Lord Peter Ricketts, Britain's former ambassador to Paris, and Leila Aboud, the FT's Paris correspondent, will take us through the highs and lows of that relationship. So, sorting out the small boats issue was uppermost in Rishi Sunak's mind this week, and so was the prospect of opening up a culture war with Keir Starmer, Gary Lineker, lawyers, well, anyone really, who opposed his plan. Stopping the boats, Mr Speaker, stopping the boats is not just my priority, it is the people's priority. But his position... His position on this is clear. He wanted to, in his words, scrap the Rwanda deal. He voted against measures to deport foreign criminals. Mr Speaker, he's just another lefty lawyer standing in our way. It was a week of some pretty big claims. For example, Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, claiming that billions of people might try to reach Britain. Or Gary Lineker, saying that the government's language around the new policy reminded him of 1930s Germany. So let's calm things down a bit and look at what we've learned this week. So Jasmine, what exactly has been proposed? So this is the illegal migration bill that was put forward to MPs in the House of Commons on Tuesday. Now, the idea behind it is that it means that any individual whom the government deems to have entered the UK illegally, for example, those who have travelled on small boats across the channel, they are no longer eligible to claim asylum. It also puts a legal duty on the Home Secretary to return any individual who's come to the UK via that route, return them to their country of origin or a third, quote, safe country. Now, that's where we would see perhaps Rwanda coming into play. There are also lots of other countries being discussed. And it was quite an interesting piece of legislation because it was widely trailed in the weekend papers. And there was lots of questioning over how this would differ to previous Mm. bits of legislation. But the main argument seems to be that actually this piece of legislation pushes the boundaries of what is legal effectively. And there's this huge question over whether it actually adheres to our international obligations as well. Now, Miranda, I was going to ask you about that because unusually, Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, wrote to Tory MPs and said there was more than a 50% chance 
that this law could breach our obligations under the European Convention of Human Rights. That's quite an interesting way for a government to behave, isn't it? Yes, which makes you think they must see some sort of political advantage in the idea of having a confrontation about it. You mentioned Suella Braverman's remarks, but also Rishi Sunak said he was up for the fight if it got as mm. far as the court. So presumably they think that this will help shore up their right flank and even see off attacks from a kind of Farageist anti-immigration wing of voters. Do you think this is going to work as a policy? Well, I think there's two aspects to it. There's one, does it have public support? And two, will it actually be effective? Is it workable? The Labour Party seems to have gone in on attack on whether it's workable or not. I think on public opinion, it's really interesting because in fact, although we have record high numbers of immigrants coming to the UK at the moment, there's also, in historic terms, there's actually very high support for certain sorts of immigration into the UK. It seems as if the public care much more about how people come here and who's coming than about the numbers. For example, people are in favour of international students, they're in favour of employing people from outside the UK. But what the public don't seem to like is unmanaged, illegal immigration, which is why the Tory party, I think, thinks a small boat's hardline policy will go over well. But of course, if the public can't see that it's been effective, then it won't convince voters. And actually, there's an enormous amount of doubt, even amongst the public being polled at the moment, as to whether it will be effective in stopping the boats. Yeah, and it's interesting. We ran a story this week, didn't we, saying that whilst on one hand, you have Rishi Sunak announcing this crackdown on illegal migration as he sees it. On the other hand, behind the scenes, government is talking about relaxing some of the rules on bringing foreign workers into the country. In the first case, in terms of construction workers, but possibly further down the line, who knows, maybe retail hospitality as well. I thought one of the interesting things, Miranda, was that the Prime Minister had the moderate Conservative MPs in Downing Street for breakfast on the day the bill was launched. And they came out pretty convinced that this was the right thing to do. And it's interesting because we often think of this, well, this is about shoring up the red wall and all the rest of it. But frankly, this is an issue for all Tory MPs, isn't it? Well, they do seem to think that their voters care about it even though the public as a whole has it very low down their list of priorities. I mean, as you would imagine at the moment, in what pollsters call the list of salient issues, the economy is way out in front, then inflation, which is a sort of subset of the economy, and then the health service. It's down to about sort of between 20 and 30% of people actually thinking that immigration is currently a priority. So in a sense, for the voting public as a whole, it might not be, but they clearly think that for their voters, it matters and actually, this very sort of hardline idea that you should refuse to accept asylum applications in the UK if someone coming here illegally could reasonably have claimed asylum in another what they call safe country, as you've explained it, Jasmine, that's got 68% support. So, you know, there is an appetite for some sort of crackdown. I think also because people do respond to the idea that it's organised crime involved and that quite a lot of the time it ends in human tragedy. Mm. And you often hear ministers and the Prime Minister talking about the sort of trafficking rings and so on. Jasmine, you spend a lot of time talking to Tory MPs. How has it gone down with them? So I think when it was being briefed, there was a little bit of cautious optimism. As we all know, there have been several announcements on immigration, lots of promises made. I think this also comes off the back of generalised optimism following the Windsor framework. And so there is a feeling among Conservative MPs that Sunak is getting a grip on administration and is capable of delivering some of these more tricky policy areas. Just touching on Miranda's point, I do think the NHS and the economy are first and foremost in the public's mind. But chatting to Tory MPs, one thing they said to me consistently is that this 
topic has essentially united the left and right of the party. So you have the right of the party who are more naturally conservative about immigration more generally. But then there are a lot of Tory moderates in those southern seats, perhaps those leafy affluent seats that are Lib Dem facing, that are hearing from constituents worried about the humanitarian angle of this. And so there is this pressure from members just from their inbox to actually address this issue. And so I think it was interesting, Sawala Bredman gave an interview with the BBC where she was asked about Home Office estimates suggesting that as many as 80,000 people could be travelling via small boats this year. And she said that that's a possibility that we could be seeing those numbers. And so even if it is proving to be effective, we're not really going to see that effect, you know, by the next general election. Yeah, that's a really good question, is it? Because the Prime Minister was standing at a lectern in Downing Street with a slogan underneath saying, stop the boats. Downing Street clarified that he meant he was going to stop all of the boats. Now, Miranda, let's just imagine the almost unimaginable. And let's say some boats are still coming across the English Channel in the run-up to the general election. What's Rishi Sunak going to say then? Well, it's very difficult, isn't it? Because it's like drawing attention to a policy that hasn't been effective. So in that sort of medium-term horizon, this may turn out to have been a bad place to focus energies. And as Jasmine, you're absolutely right, of course, a lot of those constituencies along the south coast are actually really hard fought either as Tory Lib Dem marginals in the sort of slightly more affluent bit of the south coast but also there's a lot of Labour Tory marginals as well so it could turn out to have been a bit of a mistake I mean at the moment four out of five voters think that the government's been incompetent in handling the small boats issue So how much do they think that by the time of a general election, they'll have driven that figure into reverse? You know, it's very, very unlikely, isn't it, I would say. So before we get that, we're going to get into the blame game, aren't we? First of all, let's talk about the politics. There's going to be a battle in Parliament, first of all, isn't there? Jasmine, does Rishi Sunak think the Labour Party aren't going to get on the wrong side of public opinion on this? I mean, that's what they're hoping. In an ideal world for the Conservatives, the Labour Party would have opposed it on moral grounds, saying that this is inhumane. And then the government would have had a very clear argument of, well, we're pro-stopping immigration and the Labour Party just wants to let everyone in. And we know during Wednesday's Prime Minister's questions, that is what um, Sina tried to do. Instead, the Labour Party have questioned the practicality of it and how it works. But ultimately... I think Sunak is banking on the bill having the vast majority of support from his own backbenchers and is presuming that Labour will rally behind it. I suspect the the main bit of pushback parliamentary-wise will be in the House of Lords, Mm. which is where most of these types of legislation sort of gets unpicked and gets questioned. And that's where we'll see questions over the real detail and logistics of this. Okay, so there's a political battle coming up. Then, Miranda, this is going to go into the courts for certain, isn't it? Yes, but I think that's probably where the Tory party sees most advantage in terms of, you know, their publicity campaign for being hardline on the small boats, because every chance they have, they try and describe Keir Starmer as an activist lawyer because he was a human rights lawyer. If they're battling with the courts again and saying, we need to repatriate British justice because we're being stopped from defending our borders, you can have a rational conversation about that, but they may find a battle in the courts quite useful. Mm, indeed. And then, of course, there's a battle with the other parts of the lefty blob, to paraphrase Suella Pravman, her letter which she didn't write, of course, this week. The battle with the media, and particularly with Gary Lineker, Jasmine. Yeah, so Gary Lineker from the BBC's Match of the Day, in response to a tweet put out by the Home Office, responded essentially criticising the government's plans, comparing it to Nazi Germany. There's been a lot of back and forth over this and questions over whether Lineker is going to be disciplined or sanctioned by the BBC. And naturally, this plays into the whole culture war 
that the Conservative Party have been pretty open that they're leaning into. And I think it helps the Conservative Party create an impression that it's the government that wants to control immigration and wants to stop small votes. And it's, as you say, lefty lawyers, it's members of the media, it's the courts who are all opposing this. And I think they're trying to build up a scapegoat because when it comes to the next general election and inevitably there are still small boats travelling across the channel, they can point to these various individuals and groups and say, look, that's why we've not managed to enact this. We came up with a good plan and all these opposing voices managed to stop us. Do you think that's going to work as an electoral strategy, Randa, blaming Gary Lineker rather than yourself for having been in office for 15 years and failing to fix it? Uh, No, I don't. (laughs) And I also think that, you know, in terms of public figures who you don't want to be against, people more briefed on the footballing universe than I may have views about Gary Lineker, stronger than mine. But they also got in trouble this week when asked about Mo Farah, the Olympian hero of the nation, who was trafficked here. You know, would Mo Farah have been granted asylum and then citizenship? under these new laws. I don't think so. I think it would have been deported at the age of 18, wouldn't it? Well, exactly. But she, she really did not want to answer that question. And, you know, actually also the Board of Deputies of British Jews has come out saying they're uncomfortable with some of this. Although the Labour Party, as Jasmine has rightly said, is very, very chary of attacking this legislation on sort of humanitarian grounds and wants to focus on the practicalities and whether it's workable, they could find a lot of other people lining up to point out that it's also inhumane. I was talking, Jasmine, finally to a Tory strategist who said there was a risk of going down the culture wars route in the next election because there's a danger of having the Tory party branded the nasty party. It seems to me in the case of this policy, that's a risk Rishi Sunak's prepared to take I think the bigger risk for him is being seen to do not enough to tackle the boats issue. Yeah, I think that's fair. I do believe it's one of those policy areas that it will be politically impossible for Sunak to ignore. If we think back to Brexit and the arguments of taking back control, the image of individuals who are vulnerable on these very flimsy-looking boats travelling across the Channel, it goes against that notion of taking control of our borders. And so... Sunak is betting that actually if he frames it as an argument of we as a government are against people trafficking and criminal gangs, I think that it will be more effective versus sitting back and just watching it happen. Jasmine and Miranda, thanks very much. Meanwhile, Rishi Sunak was in Paris on Friday for talks with Emmanuel Macron, a sign of a thaw in relations after years of post-Brexit froideur. And let's see how many more gratuitous French words I can chuck into this pod. This was Rishi Sunak. I believe today's meeting does mark a new beginning, an entente renewed. We are looking to the future, a future that builds on all that we share, our history, our geography, our values, and a future that is far more ambitious about how we work together to improve the lives of the people that we serve. And this was Emmanuel Macron. My wish definitely, because it's, it makes sense with our history, our geography, our DNA, I would say, is to have the best possible relation and the closest alliance. But it will depend on our commitment, our willingness, but I'm sure we will do it. Peter Ricketts, first of all, could you describe the mood between Britain and France before Rishi Sunak became Prime Minister last year? Well, it was very rocky, George. In fact, I think it was as bad as any time I can remember in my 40 years as a diplomat. It was bad over Iraq in 2003, but this was four or five years of progressive loss of trust and confidence, particularly in Paris, about British ministers. 
and it peaked under Boris Johnson and the arrival of Rishi Sunak and the war in Ukraine together, I think, have prompted a major reset, which is happening over the next two weeks. And the fact that Rishi Sunak and the EU were able to deliver that post-Brexit deal on Northern Ireland, that presumably has helped to sort of improve the mood ahead of the summit. That was very important, although interestingly, Macron committed to a UK-French summit before knowing the outcome on the Northern Ireland Protocol. So that has lifted another cloud. And then the summit being followed by the first ever state visit by the king to France in two weeks' time, that really shows that we're on a definite upward swing now. So, Leila, what's the relationship like between Rishi Sunak and Emmanuel Macron? I mean, they both seem rather alike, don't they? Yeah, I mean, there was this sort of famous picture when they met each other for the first time that did those kind of rounds on the internet of them looking quite pleased, both in their very matchy-matchy, lovely tailored suits. They have similar profiles, just they sort of were, you know, involved in the business world uh, before going into politics. They're both of the same generation. They're both in their 40s. I mean, I can just kind of see the two personalities kind of meshing in a way that Macron and Boris Johnson never would have. That relationship was very tense. And I think the French had a lot of disdain and mistrust for Boris Johnson for a while. So it can't get worse than it was before. And they both come from sort of financial service technocratic backgrounds, don't they, as well, which probably helps. They do, they do. So the atmospherics have improved, Peter. What do you think the two sides can actually deliver in terms of concrete stuff coming out of this summit? I don't think there was ever likely to be any major breakthrough announcement. Both sides wanted to send a very clear message that with a war in Europe, Europe's two leading military powers, France and Britain, were shoulder to shoulder and standing with Ukraine. And on the British side, of course, um, the Prime Minister wanted a major message from the French on migration. He was never going to get everything he wanted. Um, a returns agreement whereby people are sent back to France if they get to the UK, but then uh, fail an asylum application. That was never going to happen. The politics in France of that would have been toxic. But overall, I think this summit now empowers the two bureaucracies to work together to come up with further concrete projects and areas where the UK and France can work together. That's entirely positive. And in what sort of areas, Leila, would you say are we actually the most fruitful cooperation in the next few years? It sort of depends who you ask. I did have one French official tell me that while this visit would be more about the atmospherics and the symbolism and the photo ops, if it did nothing else, then lay the groundwork for another summit in a year where they could kind of go more deeply into the subjects themselves and that that would be a good thing. I think that from the French point of view, they're very interested in kind of rekindling the defense cooperation, security, maybe joint procurement. These are things which France and the UK, which are the biggest militaries in in Europe and both nuclear powers, really should be able to do good things together. It kind of stalled in the past few years because of the Brexit tensions and also the tensions over AUKUS, the submarine deal. But the British priority is actually on migration. And that one, as Peter mentioned, is a little bit harder to resolve. So I think there will be probably not a lot of concrete changes. In terms of the returns agreement, that's something that France is just simply not going to sign up to. It's it's a non-starter for them. So I think they'll try to be polite, but not something that they're going to work towards. And Leila, we've had a lot of coverage in the UK press this week about the small boats issue, illegal migration, from a very British perspective here. How's the issue seen in France and in the French media? It's really interesting. Even the term small boats, there's no French translation for it. This is not really a public issue here. About two years ago, when there was a quite bad drowning of 27 migrants in the channel, it was you know, front page news for a few weeks and a lot of hand-wringing and it was objectively a, a terrible occurrence. But once that faded... It's not a subject which is top of mind for most French people. It's 
kind of strange because we are in a moment where immigration and issues of national identity are top of mind for French people. And that's sort of proven by the increasing popularity of Marine Le Pen and her national rally party. So I think on the UK side, it's just kind of become an emblematic thing which is driving a lot of the domestic political agenda and talk about immigration. The boat is not as much of a heavy symbol. So Peter, as well as being the former British ambassador to Paris, you were, of course, the national security advisor, and you'll have dealt very closely with your French counterparts at that time, for sure. How have things evolved since you held that job in terms of the capacity of Britain and France to project power internationally? In 2010, we had a landmark agreement with the French called the Lancaster House Agreement, where we signed up to a whole series of areas of cooperation and defence, the armed forces working much more closely together, also defence industrial projects where the two major defence industries in Europe would cooperate. Quite a lot of the élan has gone out of that, frankly, since then, partly because of Brexit, um, partly because the French priority has rather turned towards Germany. But this war in Ukraine has brought it back. And I think there's a real imperative on both sides now to work together and a joint recognition, actually, uh, that the war in Ukraine has shown some pretty drastic shortfalls in the two armed forces. And then when you look at the Indo-Pacific, which, of course, has been a great area of Anglo-US entente with the Australians, the French feeling rather left out. Actually, if it came to a shooting war in Taiwan, neither France nor Britain would be more than a secondary player. And I think there's a feeling in both London and Paris that they ought to be talking about the Indo-Pacific, recognising that European security is going to be the dominant issue for both countries. So it's a recognition that we are no longer either of us completely global powers. We need to concentrate and prioritise. And for the moment, it's the war in Europe, which is the priority. And Leila, in the communique after the summit, there was some discussion about having coordination between UK and France about deploying carriers to the Indo-Pacific. Britain has two, France has one. Is that really a viable prospects or are we sort of suffering from delusions of grandeur here a bit? Um, I mean, I'll try to stay polite, but as Peter said, neither France or the UK has the reach or breadth to be a, a real naval power anymore. But I do think that France really does want to kind of maintain its presence in the Indo-Pacific. They have kind of far-flung territories that they want to sort of not, not defend, but, you know, maintain a credible position in the Indo-Pacific. I think they also see it as part of their identity as a country with nuclear weapons. So I think it's important for them to continue to do the naval work. And if they do it together, it probably makes it a bit more credible than if they were to do it separately. And Leila, what's the principal scope, do you think, for future industrial and business cooperation between the two sides? Is it on nuclear technology, which they are some of the most fruitful areas? Yeah. So that's actually an area where I think France is quite eager to bring the UK a little bit closer to its positions on nuclear. So France is fighting a bit of a lonely battle in the EU to advocate for its nuclear industry. And the UK has made a choice to invest in nuclear power plants. There's Sizewell, which is going to be built with EDF, the French state-backed nuclear operator. I think there's a lot more they could do there. And France is really hungry for allies in that area. So I think it would be perceived very positively here if they could come up with something from the summit that would show that. And in terms of business cooperation, I mean, I don't know. Business is a competition, realistically. And our FT office, which I'm sitting in right now, has a Bank of America office across the street from it, which is much busier now because there's a lot of bankers that have come back here after Brexit. So I wouldn't put too much stock in the idea that there's going to be more cooperation on business. I think that fundamentally Paris and London have quite different economic bases and they're in competition on many things. And Peter, finally to you, I just wonder whether the relationship will ever be quite the same after Brexit. I used to work in Brussels and 
you had this constant churn of ministers meeting each other at council meetings, prime ministers and presidents meeting at regular summit meetings. You know, having a summit every five years or even every year, it's not the same depth or don't have quite the same complicity between the two sides as you would have done if you were partners inside the EU, would you? No, I think that's right. Although there are these enormous shared interests that Leila was talking about nuclear energy. EDF is already building one of the largest construction sites in Europe at Hinkley Point in Somerset, and now set to take on a second site at Sizewell. That's a 50-year cooperation in nuclear energy. And in defence, we are still the two closest um, European powers. But you're right, we are not round the EU table. There isn't the same depth and intensity of cooperation. That's why I hope that this or a future government will agree that we should get back to some sort of structured dialogue, both with the French, but also with the EU as well, so that ministers find in their diaries on a regular basis another date in Paris or Berlin or Brussels to be talking to European counterparts. Without that, it does tend to slip. And EU countries, of course, have a higher loyalty to each other than they ever will to the UK. So the relationship will be different. But in the world after the Ukraine war... I think Britain and France suddenly find they have many more shared interests than perhaps they remembered. Peter Ricketts and Leila Aboud, thank you very much. And that's it for this episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels to receive episodes as soon as they're released. And we also appreciate positive reviews and ratings. Payne's Politics was presented by me, George Parker, and produced by Anna Dedda and Persis Love. The sound engineer is Breen Turner. Until next time, thanks for listening. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.